You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, City Church. My name is Jake Axon. I'm the student director here, and uh, it's my honor to be able to preach to you this morning. Uh, like Sarah said, believe it or not, uh, a little over 48 hours ago, um, this auditorium looked like if you spilled every piece from every board game that you've ever played in your life. Uh, 340 kids. I had the pleasure of being the group leader for close to 40 incoming sixth graders. Um, And I get to preach three services this morning. Uh, I don't normally preface my, my sermons with like a pity party. This is less of a pity party, more of just me begging you to pray for me. Um, because spent the whole week with sixth graders, probably need to get my hearing checked now, and uh, I leave tomorrow morning at 4.30 a.m. to go to City Church Students Camp, which is going to be great. Taking some, something like 78 middle and high school students, 94 people total to Ridgecrest, North Carolina, so if you wanted someone to pray for, (laughs) put me on your list, please. We've been going through Acts together for a while now, and we've seen God do some pretty spectacular things through the early church. Last week, Pastor Dean talked about how Paul and Barnabas visited the church at Antioch and brought a letter with them and taught them things about Christian liberty, uh, sin and holiness. We saw Paul and Barnabas, not only did they bring this letter and teach them things, I think the most amazing thing is they actually brought themselves, like they, they stayed with these people. And they pastored them, and they shepherded them, and they cared for them, and they taught them. And what I love the most is the overwhelming response of the church was that the people rejoiced at this. Okay, and it's following this beautiful picture of Paul and Barnabas literally doing the thing that Jesus Christ came to die for, purchasing the church. They're they're experiencing community and glory and friendship in the gospel, right? It's on the heels of this that we pick up today's text. Acts 15, verse 36 says this. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. In other words, he's saying, this went so well, what we just did in Antioch, let's go do this everywhere we've been planting churches, right? And here's where something interesting happens. Barnabas says, let's take along John, who's called Mark, But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So here's where we start today. On the heels of serious ministry momentum, a conflict emerges between Paul and Barnabas. And before I keep reading in the text, I actually think Paul and Barnabas' relationship deserves a recap of its own. Not just a recap of the book of Acts, but just Paul and Barnabas. Okay, these guys have been friends, not just friends, uh, but brothers in Christ, not just brothers in Christ, but partners in ministry for 15 years to this point. 15 years of time spent together, but not just time, ministry work. Raise your hand if you volunteered at kids camp this week. Okay. There is nothing like ministry tired. Like you get home from kids camp and you are exhausted, right? And I'm sure if you were working in a small group or in a room with other people, you and those volunteers are now much closer 
than you were before kids camp. And there's a reason for that. And you got to think about Paul and Barnabas, 15 years of ministry work. Can you think about the amount of trust, relational equity, joy and friendship and hardship and ups and downs that have been shared between these two guys? It's beyond words. They have been laboring together, sweating together, on the run together, near-death experiences together, being almost stoned to death, surviving riots, seeing God's gospel move forward dominantly through the world while experiencing persecution beyond measure for nearly a decade and a half. Have you ever been through a hard time with someone close to you? If you have, I'm sure that you know firsthand that there is nothing like suffering and difficulty to produce relational glue. For some reason, suffering bonds people more than anything else does. Certainly, memories are made through sunny and good times, but bonds and relationships are built through fiery adversity. Teammates feel this in sports. The reason you work so hard in summer workouts is so that your bonds that you make will last through the fall. Servicemen and women feel this in the military. Husband and wife feel this in marriage. And Christians feel this as well. But if this isn't enough, the relationship goes even deeper. And I want to actually point us to Acts chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. We're only going to be there for a second. It's going to be on the screen. Acts chapter 9. This is the beginning of Paul's Christian life. Okay, when he, Paul, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. You have to understand at this point, he's just been saved. He has no community. He arrives in Jerusalem. He wants to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Paul has just been saved out of this crazy Christian killing, persecuting lifestyle, probably scared to death. You have to imagine, now not only does everyone he's been persecuting hate him, now everyone who he's been persecuting people with hates him. He has nobody, nobody at all. He goes to the Christian leaders hoping to find community and they reject him because of his past, what he did before he knew Jesus. And I wanna point you, look who the first person to come to his aid is. Barnabas, took him in, brought him to the apostles, and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road, and he said that the Lord had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. When no one wanted anything to do with Paul because of his past, Barnabas stands in the place of Paul as an advocate He's willing to invite and endure the shame and failure and attitude of past Paul mistakes upon himself before the disciples. You have to understand, Barnabas is taking a humongous risk by pairing himself with Paul to attempt to justify him before these people. He's risking his reputation by by partnering up with this infamous Christian-killing man. But in doing so, there is no one more Christ-like in that moment than Barnabas who says, I know Paul's past condemns him, but Christ does not condemn him. Therefore, I do not condemn him. This is where their relationship starts. And we saw already 15 years of ministry work together, and it's understanding this, 
wrestling with this past that they have together and the relational glue they've formed, this is what makes verse 39 so hard for us to grapple with. Based on the conflict of whether they should or should not take John Mark with them, verse 39 says this. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Um, when I first read this, my instant response, probably because I've been conditioned by American culture, is to go, who's right? Who's right and who's wrong? We all love drama. We want to know who's right, who's wrong, who is guilty, who is responsible, who is to blame. And as I was studying, reading commentaries, trying to figure this out, the Bible is remarkably quiet about who is right and who is wrong. In this, in this issue. In fact, the Bible doesn't give us much information about this dispute at all besides that at some point in history, when Paul and Barnabas needed John Mark, he failed. He fled, he left, he flaked, something like that. And in Paul's mind, he thinks we should not take him with us. I don't want to worry about that again. And Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. That's the dispute at hand. And while it's easy to sit here and think, well, what, what, what I would have done is this, or I think Paul was too harsh, or I think Barnabas was being uh, too, too nice, he wasn't being serious enough, right? I think what we should do instead is put these men on trial, examine their reasonings, and let's see if we can come to the conclusion. Who is right? Who is doing the more biblical thing? So the case for Paul, trying to justify his reasoning. Paul is trying to be pastoral, and efficient. There is no one in the Bible who we could say more, more openly values God's people and God's word and God's church. He wants to serve them as best he can. And he honestly, genuinely feels like it is a risk for him to take John Mark with them because it may hinder the mission. And I think it's hard to argue with that reasoning. I understand where Paul is coming from. He doesn't have the time or the mental energy to be worried about if John Mark's going to flake again. He's, he's, I, I need to be focused on this church. I get that. In the case for Barnabas, Barnabas is simply trying to show grace to John Mark. He's trying not to count a believer's past failures against him to show him grace when no one else will. Give him a second chance to be a part of ministry that they're in. And if you notice, it sounds like Barnabas is trying to do for John Mark what Barnabas did for Paul 15 years ago. Give him a chance to prove to be faithful when no one else will. So when we circle back to the first question, who's right, who's wrong? I'm more confused than I was the first time I looked at it. They're both right. They are both right. And they're both wrong because this issue ultimately is small. We're seeing two men who love God and want nothing more than for the nations to know God splitting company over something as simple as a decision about who do we bring on this trip. Church, this is heartbreaking. 
especially coming on the heels of what we read about last week. So what do we take away from a passage like this? What do we walk out of this auditorium with? Great, I learned about uh, a friendship ending uh, in the sermon today. Like, what do we actually walk out of here with? It's not new information. I think it's simply a helpful reminder for us that relationships are hard. Ministry is messy because people are sinful. Relationships are hard and ministry is messy because people are sinful. This is not the first time God's people ever disagreed. And if you're being honest, this is definitely not the last time God's people have disagreed. What matters and what we do with this text is we need to learn how we should act when we do disagree and what should we do after we disagree. Disagreement is, a, is a, it's going to happen. What do we do when it happens? How do we act after it happens? That's what we need to look at. And so let's go back to the text to see what these guys do. The end of verse 39, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, theologians believe, to continue doing ministry. Paul chose Silas and departed. After being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord, he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We can take away from this text for our lives today, I think this right here. We cannot let non-core theological issues or preferential differences divide the body of Christ, it's okay to disagree on issues. There are certain issues we, we need to disagree on, right? We can't let it happen to the point where we now turn on each other instead of continuing forward in our fight against the darkness of the world with the gospel. Because when that happens, when we split and we've been sifted based on disagreements and differences, and, and we're no longer focused on the main goal, we're focused on each other, I want you to know, you don't win, I don't win, we don't win, they don't win, Satan wins. When he gets believers no longer focused on the Great Commission, but rather focused on what every other believer around them is doing or saying that they disagree with. And what we learn is that Paul and Barnabas, though they departed company, they did not depart the mission that they were on from God. And I think as a whole, church, myself included, this is where in 2023 I'm seeing a lot of Christians falling short. We have forgotten how to disagree and go the same direction. We have forgotten how to disagree. And this isn't just a Christian thing, we're clearly learning this from the world. If you have been on Twitter in the last 30 minutes, I'm sure you have seen an example in our world of, oh, this person disagrees with me? Yeah, well they're now Hitler. Everyone who disagrees with you is not Hitler or the worst person you could imagine. But that's how we act now. We've forgotten how to disagree and go the same direction. And I think, dangerously, the church at large has begun to adopt a form of Christian cancel culture, and it's dangerous. One person says or does one thing we disagree with and just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, did you hear about this pastor who quoted this one pastor, who one time spoke at a D-Now, who that church lets women preach on Mother's Day? Yeah, sorry, that guy's done. No longer trustworthy. Like it's insane to me. 
how many people we would completely write off, how many pastors and ministries we would say they are done, not trustworthy because of what they believe about spiritual gifts, and then turn around and quote a theologian that owned slaves. Like, we can do two things here. We either come to the conclusion that everyone is wrong, no one can be trusted, no one can be learned from, or... We say everyone has sin and error somewhere in their life and theology, but we can learn to use discernment to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Because the mistake that our culture has taught us is that now we don't label people who disagree with us as wrong, we label people who disagree with us as evil. It's not an issue anymore of I believe this, you believe that, we're different. It's now I am good, you are bad. And if we begin to live as if everyone who disagrees with me and my tribe on certain theological issues is not only wrong, but is now altogether wicked and unfit for ministry and is some sort of poor creature that doesn't see their own error. Not only will your life resemble the life of a Pharisee, your life will be lonely. Your life will be full of splits like the one we're reading about right now. And to help us prevent this and fight against this graceless posture, we have to learn about this thing called theological triage. Now, I don't want this to become a seminary class. I know that word probably scared some of you. It's very simple. Triage is a medical term, okay, that means to sort something. And essentially, the analogy everybody always gives is you're working at the ER, three people come running in. One of them has a bruise. One of them has a scratch, and one of them has a bullet hole in their leg. Triage is what helps us learn which issues require the most immediate attention and the most immediate urgency. And theologically, we can do this with theological issues. We can rank them in order of importance and in order of danger and in order of what needs to be dealt with. And so there's a man named Albert Moeller. He's actually preached here before, uh, like five years ago. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's awesome. And he coined this phrase, theological triage. And I want to give us a brief overview of it this morning. Okay? So there's three tiers. There's three tiers to the theological triage. Tier one is salvation issues. What this means is, we disagree on this, one of us is not saved, okay? You, you believe one thing about this, I believe the other, one of us is not saved. Things in salvation issue tier are things like the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? The deity of Christ, was he perfect? Was he sinless? The Trinity, the authority of the Bible, faith alone, for salvation. We disagree on how you're saved, whether it's by faith or by works. One of us is not saved. This is, these are the issues you would divide over. And you would say, hey, that right there, that, is, that person is not a Christian. Then there's tier two issues. It's called denominational differences. This is, we disagree on this. You're still a brother or sister in Christ. We definitely go to different churches. Things like this would be the practice of spiritual gifts. Uh, how you take the Lord's Supper and baptism. For example, Presbyterians have some of the best theology ever. You will find if you adhere to the Baptist faith and message 2000, you believe a lot of the same things Presbyterians believe. We differ over church government and whether we baptize infants or not. Okay? 
what we're saying with theological triage here is that do I think Presbyterians are wrong about infant baptism? I do. Do I think Presbyterians are all going to hell because they believe in infant baptism? No. Okay? That's theological triage tier two. All right? And then tier three, which I would argue most of our issues fall into this one. This is we disagree and we go to the same church. It's theological nuances. Theological nuances. These things are like how old is the earth? Like what's going to happen in the end times? What kind of music does your church do? Is it hymns or is it a rock concert? These things are, we can disagree on these things. We are going to fellowship together. We are going to be a part of the same church. This is not something to divide over. And the danger that we all face every day is to misuse this triage. And what I mean by that is to take a tier one issue and make it a tier two issue. To say, oh, the cross, it doesn't really matter what you believe about the cross. Like you just go to another church. Like, no. If you, the cross is the cross, it is the only way to be saved, trusting in Christ on the cross. If we disagree, one of us isn't saved. That's a big deal. Infant baptism, we're going to go to different churches. The other way that we misuse the triage is we elevate things that aren't important to make a salvation issue something like how you view spiritual gifts or how you view the Lord's Supper. When we misuse the triage and we begin to add things to the gospel add things to what is required to be saved. Guys, when we do that, we take away. You add anything to the gospel, you take away the power of the gospel to save. And when we misuse the triage, and salvation is now no longer by faith and repentance, but is instead by faith, repentance, perfect theological accuracy regarding baptism, the Lord's Supper, church government, and a whole plethora of second and third tier issues, the only Christians in the world are just gonna be you. And heaven is going to be lonely for you. There's a joke um, about Baptists in heaven by a man named J.A. Metters. And I just want to share it because I think it is so accurate to the times we're living in. Basically, the joke is everyone who's a Christian one day is going to stand at the gates of heaven. And an angel is going to open the gates for you. And he's going to invite you in. And you're going to walk down the hallways of heaven. And you're going to walk by a door on your left. And it's going to sound like a rave is going on. People are running around, jumping up and down, flags, or people are running around with flags and everything, and someone's going to go, what is this? And the angel's going to go, these are the Pentecostals. And then they're going to go past another room, and there's going to be an organ playing, and there's going to be candles lit, and people wearing robes. And he says, what is this one? And the angel says, these are the Methodists. And then you're going to walk a little bit further, and the angel's going to go, shh, everybody keep your voices down. And you're going to walk past a door that's shut. And someone's going to go, why are we being so quiet? And the angel's going to go, these are the Baptists, and they think they're the only ones in here. <laughs> that, it's funny, it's funny, but we practically live like that sometimes. And I want you to know for certain this morning, there are going to be people in heaven that have serious theological differences with you and I. There are going to be people who voted differently than you in heaven. There are going to be people who baptize babies in heaven. There are going to be women who preached on Sundays often in heaven. There are going to be people who owned slaves in heaven. There are going to be people in heaven that have 
different theological views than us. And the reason I can say this confidently is because you do not get into heaven. I do not get into heaven. We do not have our sins forgiven based on what you believe about second and third tier theological issues. You are saved because Christ took your punishment on the cross, died in your place, and offers you life. And you can, by faith, trust in him, repent of your sins, and be made new. You are not saved based on theological correctness. You are saved because God had mercy on you. We're not saved because we are great. We are saved because Christ is great. Now, what I want you to hear that I'm not saying is this. I am not saying that theological differences don't matter or are some light topic. People don't leave churches and friendships and communities and relationships over the type of coffee that is served in the lobby. They leave and they split over things that matter. And theology matters desperately. Theology and truth matter desperately, especially in 2023 where truth seems like an ancient artifact, a fleeting thing. What I don't want to happen is for the volatile nature of theology when mishandled by prideful and arrogant people to deter you from diving headfirst into the beauty and glory and riches of knowing God. And I say this all the time in our student ministry. Theology is crucially important. It shapes how you follow and worship God. And the reason why is because you cannot love a God that you do not know. You cannot love a God that you do not know. And if your relationship with God is built on butterflies in your stomach, it's going to go away. And when you don't know anything of God, you will have no substance to hold on to. We must have theology. Because it's so important, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. Do you know how many people have been hurt by the prosperity gospel? In America, God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Amen. That is awesome. And then you get cancer. Then what? Was God holding out on you? No, you just don't have enough faith to be healed. That hurts people. Do you know how many people are going to go to hell because progressive Christianity has snatched the minds and hearts of people into believing that Christianity is some spineless, accepting, love at all costs, never say anything difficult, your sin is okay because it's just who you are. Bad theology hurts people, and for that reason, theology matters. So in sum it up in two phrases, this is what I want us to take away from theological triage. Truth matters. Unity without truth is blind allegiance, and the Bible condemns it. We don't unify over nothing. That is what the world does today. But at the same time, forgiveness and grace and triage matter, because though we disagree on small theological issues does not mean we are on different teams. Theological triage matters. I want us to look at what happens after the split takes place in Acts 16. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra, 
where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. We're going to time out right here. If you were here the last two weeks, you're probably like, is this the same Paul that was just berating the Galatian church because they were trying to make circumcision like a necessary requirement of salvation? It is the same Paul. And I want to share with you, Paul would agree with you. Paul is not circumcising Timothy because he wants Timothy to be saved. Paul knows that these Jews will not listen to a word that Timothy says if he is not circumcised. So in an effort to reach the Jews, Paul says, I will become like a Jew for the sake of the Jews. I will become like a Greek for the sake of a Greek. Just want to clarify that. I don't have time to dive more into that. Verse 4, here we go. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the result of this split that we see, not only is these two, Barnabas and Paul, going back on mission, but it leads Paul to the doorstep of a man named Timothy. I think it's easy for us in our lives when we make a mistake, when we have relational fallout, when we act pridefully or we act sinfully, which we all do all the time, and we mess something up in our life, it's easy for us to sit back and think, well, what is God going to do with this? screwed it all up. No doubt this might be how Paul and Barnabas are feeling in the aftermath of this rift. And if that's us, man, God, I, I've screwed it up so bad, like the church is done. What, what's, what is God? God can't do anything with this. Though we would never say that, we live and act as if we somehow have the power to overthrow God's perfect and sovereign will. Like demons tremble in fear before Jesus. Nothing in the universe happens without his authority. Nothing can thwart his plans, nothing can pluck you from his hands, but your mistake, oh no, the church is done now. No. There's comfort for us in that. There is a spiritual principle for us to see, and it's this. God is sovereign even when we fail. God is sovereign all-powerful, in control over everything, including when we fail. And because this is true, we can rest in this. Paul and Barnabas' sins and mistakes could not destroy the church or thwart God's purposes in the world because Paul and Barnabas are not the ones driving the church forward. God was not dependent on their strength to start it, and he is not dependent on their strength to keep it going. And that is why it is possible for when a split happens between two titans of the faith in Paul and Barnabas, it splits in a violent fashion. There's a tearing of the fabric of community between two men who would have done so much good for the believers had they just stayed together. When this happens, we do not see a regression in the gospel. We see a multiplication in the gospel because God is the one who brings the growth, not man. You can rest in that. When we say God is sovereign over everything and is in control and has a purpose, we don't just mean for the good things that we like, but the things that sting, the things that hurt, 
the things we mess up that linger with us. We sit up all night. Did I handle this right? Did I do this correctly? Did I go far enough? Did I not? Did I, did I go too far? Did I make the right choice? Ultimately, you can sit and wonder all day long. Did I do this? Did I do that? You can be certain that God will use, but not only use, purpose your circumstance, your situation, wherever you are, whatever you do, he will purpose it not only for his glory, but for his good. And what we see is that the split of Paul and Barnabas happens as a result of, I would argue, selfishness, lack of patience, and pride between Paul and Barnabas. And it happens because God planned for it to lead to Timothy being brought into the fray. You see, Paul ended up writing letters to Timothy that are now in our Bibles. And if you've read First or Second Timothy, I'm sure you know they are glorious and rich with soul-satisfying goodness of who God is. And I would argue that if this split doesn't happen, there is no First and Second Timothy. And now instead of one missionary team of Paul and Barnabas, there's two missionary teams of Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and Mark. And it's just awesome. I want you to see the result. Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This split, and this is an excusing division. It's showing that when we fail, God doesn't fail. Nothing can thwart his goodness or his purposes. And in fact, I'm going to kind of sound like, like that, that meme where it's like a guy standing with a chalkboard behind him and he's got red strings going everywhere, the conspiracy theorists. I'm going to sound like this here for a second. But I want you to imagine Paul and Barnabas splitting. Paul never meets Timothy if that doesn't happen. Therefore, we never have First and Second Timothy if that doesn't happen, which means we never have this verse, which God graciously shows us, Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul is writing his closing remarks to Timothy, and this is what he says right here. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Paul and Mark, at some point down the road, reconciled. They were able to put aside their differences and come together undoubtedly after much prayer and the spirit working in them and sanctification. And through this, they continued to push forward with the gospel. I'm so glad that God gave us that verse so that we can see that it is possible to be different on issues and go the same direction. And the last takeaway that I have for us this morning we learn from Barnabas and how he handled these issues and Paul from what we see later in his life. And it's this, people who have been shown grace, show grace. If you're a Christian in this room, I wanna remind you of something that I'm constantly reminding myself of, not only to subdue my pridefulness, but to continually wow me at God's goodness. And it's this, God loved you before you ever read your Bible. God loved you before you ever had a theology. The Bible says God loves you while you're still sinning. Do you know what that means for us? That God's love is not dependent on how well I'm doing these things. God doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he's good. And that kills pride. 
God doesn't love us because of how holy we are or how theologically smart we are. Our life is not a constant walking on a tightrope trying to do the right thing to appease God and get him to love us. God's approval was on you before you were born when he sent his son to the cross to take your sin and drink his wrath that belongs to us. He took it himself. And Barnabas knows this. He knows how undeserving of salvation and redemption he is. And I think this is something all of us should do regularly, is come face to face with our own sin and realize I don't deserve anything. God could have just destroyed me and it would have been gracious. But he doesn't, just des- he doesn't not destroy me. He actually saves me. But he doesn't just save me. He brings me into his family. He doesn't just do that. He gives me all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. God's grace is astounding the more we realize our own sin. And he knows that he doesn't deserve grace, that God would save him and love him, and that is what drives Barnabas to be so gracious to men like Paul and like John Mark. And it's because of Barnabas' graciousness that was fueled by his receiving of grace that John Mark is able to return to ministry and Timothy is able to begin in ministry. I'm going to close with this. The world that we live in right now is outrageously unforgiving and harsh and hypocritical. You say one thing that the world doesn't like, you are done. That's the culture we're in right now. As a church, we cannot copy that model. Especially, especially when the way the world will know that we are followers of Christ, the way that we will know that we are holy and set apart and of a different kingdom is not by how correct our theology is or how cleverly we correct other people's theology. John 13, 35 says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We show the world that we're different, that we're holy, set apart, that we're followers of Christ by how we set aside small differences. We set aside small differences for the sake of elevating the gospel of Jesus Christ. The more we set aside these issues, the more the cross of Christ stands as the great unifier of history. Let's learn from Barnabas and from Paul later on his life that there is now no Jew and no Greek, no black and no white. There is Christian and non-Christian, and our fight is not with other Christians. Our fight is with the enemy and with sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, Lord, and just this, this picture in Acts 15. I thank you that you don't hide the mistakes of your followers, Lord, so that we can see it and go, we are not crazy. We sin too, just like them. And Lord, let it remind us that we need the gospel. We need the cross. We need your, we need your, your salvation just as much as Paul and Barnabas. And that it's not given to us based on how smart we are or how correct we are or how disciplined we are. It is given to us when we deserve at least while we are still sinning, you loved us and gave yourself for us. You took the first act. God, starting with me, would you let that humble us and transform us to be the most gracious and truthful people in existence and let us stand out like a light on a hill to the world that doesn't know these things. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.